Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we are doing a sermon series called The Footsteps of Jesus. The goal of this series is to explore how each of the steps or stages in Jesus's ministry are aspects of our own journey as Christians that we need to mirror in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from Matthew, the fifth chapter. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are doing a sermon series during Lent called The Footsteps of Jesus. The concept behind this series is that each week we are looking at the various steps or stages in Jesus' ministry. We're going into each stage, and we're going to see what does that mean to us? What did he do? And how can that impact our own journey as Christians? And the goal is for us to grow closer to God, Jesus, and to really become transformed as Christians in our own lives. Last week, we talked about step two in Jesus' ministry, where he calls his first disciples. And what I explained to you is that when a rabbi calls his disciples, he believes that the disciple can be like him. Ultimately, that the disciple can do what the rabbi does. And so what I told you is that when you accept the call to become one of Jesus' disciples, he believes that you can become like him, that you can do the things that he does. And today, as we move in to the next step of Jesus' ministry, of course, if you're going to do what he does, you have to know his teachings. And so today, step three is about Jesus' teachings. The core of Jesus' teachings can be found in Matthew chapter 5-7. through seven. This is better known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And, of course, there are other teachings besides the Sermon on the Mount, but this is really where the bulk of them are to be found. I did a whole sermon series a few years ago just on the Sermon on the Mount where we went through each one of these individually. Today we bookended it. We did the first and the last scripture in the sermon. Now, the first scripture that you heard Judy read, what is that commonly referred to? Do you know? The Beatitudes. Good. Okay. You all read it before, clearly, right? We don't need to talk about it. Moving on. No. The Beatitudes, big fancy word for blessings. And what you probably noticed is that as Judy was reading it, Jesus is listing off the various people who God sees as being blessed. But what's interesting about this is the fact that the way that Jesus defines blessing in this is a little bit different. So first, let's get a baseline. What is a general definition of blessing? Blessing is usually when you experience some kind of good fortune, right? So let's say that you were in a car accident and you walked away without a scratch. Is that a blessing? All right. You go to the hospital. You're in a situation where you don't think you're going to make it, and you survive. Is that a blessing? Yes. If you come into some money, is that a blessing? Okay. Huh? Coming into some comfort, if you get comfort in your, in your life, is that a blessing? Yes. I mean, these things are what we generally refer to as blessings. Now, when you apply that definition to the Beatitudes, all of a sudden, you realize something doesn't quite add up. Now let's look at it again, just the first few verses of it, because I think it's really interesting. Look at how Jesus defines blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is taking the concept of blessing here, and it's almost oxymoronic, isn't it? He's saying that your blessing comes from being in difficult situations. Your good fortune comes from being in difficult situations. So are you poor in spirit? Are you depressed? Do you feel like your world is crashing down around you? Then guess what? You're blessed. (laughs) Are you mourning? Has somebody in your life died who you cared a lot about? Are you going into a different stage of your life and you're having trouble saying goodbye to that old part of yourself? Then you too are blessed. Are you meek? Do you have trouble standing up for yourself? Do people just walk all over you? Then guess what? You too are blessed. Jesus takes the idea of blessing and turns it upside down. It's the exact opposite of what we would expect it to be. So for Jesus, blessing is not about good health. It's not about money or objects or any of those things that we normally associate with it. For Jesus, your blessing is when you are suffering and you are struggling and you don't know if you're going to make it. That's when you're blessed. Now that's how Jesus starts his teachings, by the way, right? He begins it with that. And that pattern continues throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything is backwards. Nothing is as you would expect it to be. In every way that you've come to understand what is good and right in life and society, Jesus upends all that and says, no, it's wrong. And perhaps one of the biggest ways and most profound ways that Jesus controverts our understanding of what is right and wrong is when he classifies thoughts as sins. He classifies thoughts as sins. He does this in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, prior to Jesus coming along, just so we're all clear here, If you wanted to be accused of committing a sin, you had to actually do something. So if you were going to be accused of committing murder, 
you had to actually go out and kill someone in the real world. But according to Jesus, according to his way of thinking, you can think about killing someone, and that is equally as sinful as actually going out and committing that act in the real world. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, that sounds crazy to me in some ways because there's a big difference, isn't there, between thinking about doing something and actually doing it in the real world? Would you agree with me? I mean, there is a big difference, right? But Jesus sees them as one and the same. And let me tell you why he sees them as one and the same. Because every time you commit a sin, you have to think about it before you do it. The thought leads to the action. If you didn't think about it, you wouldn't do that. And so for Jesus, the act or the deed, right, the sin is the actualization of the thought in the real world. You following me on this? You following me? So if you had more pure thoughts and you weren't thinking about killing that person, then you wouldn't have committed the act of murder. We're on the same page. Are we? All right, I just want to make sure you're following the logic here, okay? All right, just want to make sure you're with me. Now, here's the problem with this. Much easier to control your actions than it is to control your thoughts, am I right? And so here's the deal. We also sit there and we say, okay, but there's a big difference, isn't there, between the real-world implications and the consequences of thoughts and actions. So think about what happened in New Zealand, right? When this guy, when, when he killed these people, that has real consequences in the world, doesn't it? All of those people are connected to other people, and they feel real pain and real grief in their lives. Whereas if I sit here and I think about it, or you all think about killing me, I might not ever knew that you felt that way about me, right? It's not the same consequence, is it? Now, when we look at this, when we're looking at the way that Jesus talks about this, the practical difference between thoughts and actions seems so insurmountably vast that it calls into question whether Jesus' definition of sin is too harsh. Is it too severe? Has he put the bar too high? Because if sin is based on my thoughts, then it feels like a losing proposition, doesn't it? Like, we sit there and we say, well, it's really hard for me to control my bad thoughts, so, you know, maybe I just shouldn't even try. And this is the way that Christians have approached Jesus' teachings throughout the vast majority of human history. They just say, well, the bar is too high and we can't do it. And the church, by the way, has reinforced this because along the way, the church would say, yeah, well, I mean, he said these things, but he doesn't actually expect you to do them. And what would happen is the only people who would actually try it were monks and nuns, and they often weren't very successful. But this all began to change at the beginning of the 20th century, thanks to a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Bonhoeffer, he was born on February 4th, 1906, in Germany. He was the sixth of eight children, and he was a brilliant young man. He stuck out from his peers. He was kind of, kind of strange. He liked going to church. <laughs> what a weirdo, right? Who goes to church on Sunday morning? So, he goes to church, and on top of all of that, he actually wanted to learn more about the Christian faith. And what you have to appreciate is that in the early 1900s in Germany, everybody went to church, right? I mean, it was an obligation socially that you would be there, but nobody actually paid attention to anything that the church was saying or the pastors were saying. I mean, it's just like you guys, right? You don't pay attention to anything I'm saying. You just leave, right? Go out. But the fact is, 
You didn't do that. And you were actually jeered at in social circles. You were made fun of if you cared about the church. You cared about what they had to say. But Bonhoeffer, he didn't care about that social stigmatization. And he decided he wanted to study theology. So he goes to the University of Berlin, and he gets his doctorate in theology. Theology, by the way, is what? The study of God, right? That's what it means. So he gets his doctorate in theology in 1927 at the age of 21. That's when he gets his doctorate. So I told you the man was brilliant. Now, he was too young to be ordained in the church as a pastor. So he gets a teaching position, and eventually he receives a teaching fellowship to travel over to America. And he goes to New York City, and he teaches at Union Theological Seminary. And this is a picture of the class where he would teach, and he developed two very important friendships while he was there. The most important of these was with Frank Fisher and with Miles Horton. These were two African-American seminarians who were at Union. These became two of his closest friends. Now, Frank Fisher, he introduced Bonhoeffer to Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. Now, this is 1930, by the way. You have to remember this. 1930, Bonhoeffer is the only white person who goes to this church, but he loved it. He absolutely loved it. He taught Sunday school there, and he loved listening to the African-American spirituals, and he bought all of these records of these spirituals and took them with him back to Germany because he wanted to hold on to that part of his time in America. But perhaps the most important aspect of his time at Abyssinian Baptist Church is that he became aware of the inequality and the injustice that was faced by minorities in the United States. Bonhoeffer was shocked at the vicious racism that African Americans had to face in the 1930s. And what saddened him even more was that white churches were silent in the face of this injustice. In the North, the churches said nothing. And in the South, they went one step further where they condoned racism, or sometimes they even perpetuated that racism from the pulpit. Now, as a result of his time at Abyssinian Baptist Church, Bonhoeffer's Christianity underwent a radical transformation. Prior to going to Harlem, he kind of believed that Christianity was mostly an intellectual pursuit. But after he came back from Harlem, what he felt is that a Christian faith that is not lived, if it doesn't transform your life, in particular, standing up to injustice and inequality, then you have no real faith. He goes back to Germany. He gets ordained in the German evangelical church as a pastor. And the moment he gets into the pulpit, he starts preaching something that nobody had ever heard in Germany before. He points to the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, these teachings are things that Jesus actually expects us to do. We cannot ignore them. We cannot say that they are too hard. We have to live these things out in our life with God's help to the best of our ability. Now immediately, this message was tested because at the same time that Bonhoeffer was becoming a pastor, Hitler was completing his rise to power. On February 1st, 1933, the day after Hitler is sworn in his Fuhrer, Bonhoeffer does a radio address. He addresses the German people in an essay that he entitled the younger generation's altered view of the concept of Fuhrer. And in this, this is what he says during the radio address. If the leader tries to become the idol, 
the lead are looking for, something the lead always hoped for from their leader. Then the image of the leader shifts to one of a misleader. Then the leader is acting improperly, improperly toward the lead as well as toward himself. Just as Bonhoeffer was coming to the apex of his argument where he was going to tell the German people that they are a check and balance to Hitler's power, the radio broadcast was cut. Bonhoeffer, out of all the pastors in Germany, was the only one who had the courage to stand up and speak out against Hitler. He was one of the only people who had the courage to risk himself in the way that he did, and he didn't stop there. Two months later, in April, he publishes an essay. The essay is called The Church and the Jewish Question. And in this essay, he outlines three methods of opposition to the Nazi regime. First, the church is called upon to speak out against state injustice. You have to say something when you see the state doing something wrong. Two, the church is called upon to help victims of injustice regardless of whether they are Christian or not. And then three, they are called upon, at some point, the church may have to be a spoke in the wheel of the machinery of injustice to bring it to a halt. Now, this bold rhetoric against Hitler came at great personal cost to Bonhoeffer because what became clear very quickly is that he was one of the few people who was willing to speak out. Most of his colleagues, most of the pastors around him, they did not want to say anything. They were silent in the face of what the Nazis were doing. And he became an outlier. And as he talked to them, he said, come on, let's go, let's do this together. And they said, no, we do not feel that the church is a tool to stop the injustice of the state. So you know what he did? He went out and started his own underground seminary where he trained pastors to be part of the resistance. He trained them to inspire their congregations to help Jews and to be part of the opposition against the Nazi regime. The underground seminary was discovered by the Gestapo in 1937 and was shut down in September of that year. Now, what did I tell you? How did I define blessing? How does Jesus define blessing? Do you remember? When you're suffering and you're struggling and you don't know if you're going to make it. That's when you are blessed. And Bonhoeffer, he understood that. Now, do you think Bonhoeffer was deterred by his seminary getting shut down? No, he was not. He started searching around and he found out about other measures of opposition that were taking place. One came from his brother-in-law, who was working in the justice of ministry. And, or the, and he decides that what he's going to do, that he's going to become part of an operation known as Operation 7. These people would get together and they would create false papers for Jews to get them out of Germany before they were rounded up and taken to the concentration camps to be killed. He also became part of Operation Valkyrie, which some of you probably know more about because that's been a movie and all these different things. Operation Valkyrie, for those of you who don't know about it, was a conspiracy among some of the highest members of the Nazi government to assassinate Hitler and take over. So the idea was that they were going to take a suitcase bomb into a strategy meeting, detonate it, assassinate Hitler, take over the government, and negotiate an armistice treaty with the Allied forces. Unfortunately, when it came to the meeting, they ended up shoving the bomb too far underneath the table where they were standing. 
And because the table was held up by this really thick wooden support, when the bomb went off, and you can see the damage that was done by this bomb, I mean, it destroyed the room. Hitler was actually shielded from the blast because of this really strong wooden support that it was next to. So when it became clear that this was the result of conspirators who had been working together, they started rounding them up, and Bonhoeffer's name was mentioned. He was arrested, and he was sentenced to death. He was hanged on April 9, 1945, less than a month before Germany would surrender. He was hung, by the way, along with, or hanged, alongside his brother-in-law and the other co-conspirators. Now, once people understood that Bonhoeffer had been part of the plot to assassinate Hitler, it started to put his works, his writings, into a different light. He had produced a book at one point called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he talked about the sacrifices that are required of us to be a disciple of Jesus. And he makes this interesting distinction in this book between cheap grace and costly grace. Now, grace, of course, is the gift that we are given by God when we are forgiven of our mistakes. So cheap grace is when you accept that forgiveness and you move on and you are unchanged in who you are. You are no different as a result of it. You take the gift and you say, oh, thanks a lot. And then you move on and you are not changed. Costly grace, on the other hand, is defined in this way. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. In other words, when you follow the gospel, when you follow Jesus' teachings, you are forced to be a different kind of person. You are forced to do things that you wouldn't normally do. You are forced outside of your comfort zone. You are forced to be courageous. You are forced to speak out against injustice. You are forced to stand up for the oppressed and serve those who cannot serve themselves. You are forced to act when your natural inclination is to sit back and to do nothing. You are forced to be like Jesus. And this is why he ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, acts on them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like the wise man who built his house on rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and battered that house. But that house, it did not fall because it was founded on rock. Bonhoeffer, he was living at a time where the rains were falling, the floods were coming, the winds were blowing because of the evil that was being perpetrated by the Nazi party. And almost all of the Christians around him were silent in the face of that evil. They were not willing to stand up. They were not willing to speak out because they were scared because they had not invested in Jesus' teachings, because they had built their house on sand. But Bonhoeffer, he was not that way. He was not scared. He was willing to follow Jesus' teachings in the midst of that storm, even though he knew that that could get him killed. He knew that it was worth the sacrifice, and that is because he had built his house 
on rock. And that, my friends, is the cost of discipleship. If we are to build God's kingdom in our midst, then we have to be willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to invest everything we have. If you are going to create God's kingdom, then you have to be willing to follow Jesus' teachings. And you know what happens when you follow Jesus' teachings? You embody the love, the forgiveness, the grace, the compassion, the hospitality of God. And when people come through our doors, they should feel that from every single one of us. They should feel as though they are in the presence of God in this place. And I need to tell you something. I've heard of many incidents over the last several months where people have come to our church and they have not felt that way. These are people who often look different from the vast majority of people who are in here. They did not feel welcomed. They did not feel loved. They felt turned away. And my friends, this is something that's on every single person who sits in this room today. We have to be welcoming to the people who come through our doors, and we have to say, come, be part of us, be part of our congregation, and that includes everyone. You cannot be driven by fear in your heart. You have to be driven by love. And I believe that we can do that. I believe we can get over this. I believe we can do better. Bonhoeffer believed that we could follow the teachings of Jesus, that they were within our grasp, and I believe that too. I believe we can do what Jesus asks of us. We simply have to open ourselves to the transformative love of God. And so my prayer for you today is that you might embrace the third step in Jesus' ministry. May you build your house on rock. May you invest in Jesus' teachings. May you stand up and speak out against injustice and oppression. But may you, most importantly, understand the cost of discipleship. Jesus asks everything of us. The question is, are you willing to make the sacrifice? Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.